Why do the wrongs of the past still haunt me? I thought I was forgiven. Why is my life falling apart before my eyes? Aren't you paying any attention at all? And why is it so hard to break my bad habits? You said you're supposed to help me. Sometimes I feel so alone. God, do you even notice? Are you too busy? Hello, Woodland Hills. Hello, pod Regioners and folks watching from, uh, some, through some other means. We're in the middle of a series called Crap Happens, because it does, as you all know. Uh, it happens. And so we're looking at different aspects of crap that happens in our life and why it happens the way it does and, and how are we to respond to it when it happens. And so this morning we're looking at uh, this aspect of crap. The title of it is Sin Happens. Happens to be a topic I know very little about personally, but I've heard that it's quite a problem. I thought my friend Dave Churchill would be a lot better at this because he has a lot more experience in it. But uh, as it is, I, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm trying to, oh, Dave, come back to me. It's my old friend Dave. We've been driving at each other for, uh, for 20 years now. Sin happens. And uh, during this series, remember, we're uh, taking questions at the end. We're going to try to leave 10, 15 minutes for two or three or four questions. And so as I'm going through this, if you get questions you'd like to ask, just text those in. Um, the number here is 651-651. What's the next number? The number here is... <laughs> uh, yeah, send us your crap. Thank you very much. We need to know that. <laughs> Actually, don't. We've got enough of it to deal with. Uh, send us your crap. Questions about sermon? Uh, well, yeah, we got that, but what's the number we're supposed to call? Yeah, there we are. Thank you. Thank you. These guys just jerk me around like you wouldn't believe. You guys have compassion on me. I take a lot of crap around here. 321-3030. And if you don't have texting uh, devices... Uh, you can uh, go back at the uh, back of the auditorium and write out on a piece of paper your question. Put it in the envelope. We'll pick that up and we'll try to get to them that way. So here's an illustration of what we're talking about. Uh, I'll call her Texra, not a real name, but Texra has struggled with a particular sin all of her life. Uh, she tends to gossip. Negative stuff fills her brain and flows from her lips as naturally as breathing. It seems. And she, she has read over and over again in the Bible that this is a sin. And this is not like something that you're supposed to wink at and be okay with. No, this is a grievous sin. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about slander, gossip, and things of that sort. And she feels bad about it. She knows it harms people when you gossip about, about them. She knows it's idolatry. It's a false way of getting life, getting worth to yourself. In fact, it's really the most primitive form of tribal idolatry there is, where you got two or three or four people who get together and, and they make themselves feel good about each other by contrasting themselves with another. Because the presupposition of all gossip, gossip is judgment and, and, and uh, self-righteousness. And so Texra is, is grieved by this sin. She knows in the Bible it's listed right by murder. It's a serious sin. She wants to change. And it's made all the worse in Christian circles because sometimes we Christianize it. Not only do we not really take it that seriously, we like to pinpoint other people's sins way more than our own, but we tend to Christianize this. It sometimes comes under the guise of, uh, of a concern for somebody or a prayer request for somebody. You know, I'm just worried about uh, Julia Child because, uh, I, you know, I've heard that she's really been struggling with her husband. And I, I can see why because she's so mean to him. Have you noticed the way she... We need to pray for her because... Blah, 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 blah. And, and in the name of sharing a concern or a prayer request, sometimes we just tear people apart. And don't we feel kind of special that we're not like that? And Texra feels bad about this. She wants to change. Early on in her Christian walk, she thought it, this, it was just a matter of time before she changed. Uh, there'll come a day for sure when she'll be free of this grievous sin. 20 years later, she's not free. 20 years later, maybe it's even worse because the longer you persevere in any habit the more it becomes part of your character and the harder it is to get out, uh, to change in your life. She prays, Lord, deliver me from this sin. Why don't you take this away? Why do you make it so hard? But nothing changes. And what's particularly aggravating to Texra, and some of us can relate to this, is she knows people, or at least has heard of, about people, who the minute they gave their life to Jesus, their sin was just evaporated. They just got it taken away. They had, they had lifelong bondage to gossip, or maybe it was alcohol, or sex addiction, or whatever. And they gave the heart to Jesus, and the very desire for that sin left them. They were delivered, miraculously. And so she's left wondering, why not me? 
Why not me? How come I've got to struggle all my life with this thing when other people just get it zapped out of them magically? It's not fair. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we can't answer the question, why do some people on occasion get it miraculously zapped out of them? They're transformed immediately, while most of us don't have that experience. We have to struggle with it. Ultimately, you can't answer that question. But it's not because, as we said last week, it's not because God is arbitrary, going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. The word's a whole lot more complex than what's just a matter of God's will or, or our state of faith and righteousness. Behind every fact there is, there's a, there's a virtual, almost infinite number of causes leading up to it. Trillions upon trillions upon trillions of decisions made, each that have a ripple effect, that go into the, the whole mix of things and interfere and, and mix in with one another. So, so ultimately, behind every fact, there's a sea of mystery. We can't ever understand why things are the way they are. We don't know why one prayer is answered the way it is and another prayer is not, or why it's answered differently. We don't know why one person is magically transformed and another person is not transformed immediately. We can't even understand why I've got a, a, a white coffee thing up here now instead of a purple one or a cup of some sort. And by the way, this is not styrofoam. I'm not damaging the, pro, uh, the planet. Uh, it's actually plastic. It just looks like styrofoam, so you don't have to worry about that. ADD moment, once again. So, but you see, to understand why I grabbed this, there, there, you'd have to understand everything about how I was raised and everything about my parents who raised me and everything about the, their parents and, and every other fact going back to the beginning of time. So, so everything strikes us as arbitrary, but it's not because God is arbitrary, because God is forever the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always good. He's always loving. He's always consistent. But the world is a mixed up place, and the world is unfathomably complex. So we can let go of those kind of questions. Let go of those kind of questions. Life can be arbitrary. But the bottom line is this. While we can't explain why one person is just instantaneously transformed and another, and another has to struggle with it, uh, we can say this, that the norm, the norm is that we struggle with it. Thank God for those people who are, those lucky ones who get it just zapped out of their existence. Wonderful. But most of us don't have that experience. I actually get worried when I hear people testify uh, and put too much leverage on how God miraculously transformed them. Isn't that sick? But I don't think it is sick, actually. So it's not, no, because see, like, I, I've heard, like, alcoholics who got freed to the beginning of their life to Jesus, and, and then they lay that out before other alcoholics. And the assumption is if you just trust God enough, well, then he'll take away your desire. Well, what you can end up with, with is a bunch of people who are drinking themselves silly, waiting for God to show up and take it from them. <laughs> Uh, no, no, thank God I, you, you got your taste just taken away from you. But for most people, it's a decision you make a hundred times a day, day in and day out. That's the norm. And so we can't ever hold up the, the miraculous transformations as though that was the norm and as though there's something defective about the rest of us who have to work at it. It, it doesn't work like that. Uh, there is actually a reason why ordinarily God motivates us to work on things, why God doesn't deliver us automatically from the struggles that we have. And it's important for us to understand what this reason is. It's part of his growth process. It goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the creation of human beings, back to Genesis 1 and 2. Human beings were created to have dominion. We were to reflect God's merciful, loving, tender care on the animal kingdom and on the environment. We were to reflect God's character, his, his character of perfect love by the way that we think about ourselves and by the way that we treat other people and by the way that we treat animals and by the way that we treat the environment. Genesis 1. And it runs throughout the whole Bible. We were empowered to exercise God's rule. We're made in God's image, which means we do in a little way what he does in a big way. He's the Lord over the whole creation. Our job was to be many lords over this planet. But we're not the ultimate lords. We're the, the viceroys. That word just means that you're second in command. You have authority under someone else's authority. God's viceroys. And from the start, God wanted a people whom he calls a bride. A bride who would sit with him on the throne, as we read about throughout the New Testament. And we would reign with him, and we would rule with him, and we'd exercise power and authority with him. He wants a bride who, who's got say-so and aligns her will with his will, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just a New Testament thing. That's... That's, that's a central part of the narrative. That's why we exist. That's, that's our destiny. We're to be God's administrators on earth. The conduits by which his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So God wants to be Lord of the whole creation, including the earth. But he wants to be Lord through us. He's a social God and everything he does, he does through mediaries. And we're the mediaries here on earth. So we have this tremendous authority. We have say-so 
over the animals and the environment. Now, sadly, we surrendered that authority over to God's arch enemy, the spiritual principality and power named Satan. And now things that were supposed to be under our control are largely not under our control. In fact, there's many things that we're supposed to be in control of that now control us. We surrendered our authority to Satan. That's why it's called the God of this age and the principality and power of the air. And he controls the entire world. It says in 1 John 5, 19, and Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And we've surrendered our authority over to him. So now there's a lot of things that we're to be in control of that instead control us. For example, we're supposed to have control of our thoughts. That's why the Bible tells us what to think. Our brain is our servant, or at least it's supposed to be our servant. But as you know, we often don't tell our brains what to think. Our brains simply tell us who we are. And, 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 and in fact, most people don't even realize that they're different from their brains. They think they are their brains. Whatever their brains think, they think that's who they are. And so they think that they can't help it. Their brains just told them that they're lousy or they're losers or they're miserable or whatever mom and dad and grandma and boyfriend and girlfriend or car accident communicated to their brains. They think that's, that's, they identify with that. And so to a large degree, we don't tell our brains what to think. To a large degree, we're, we're supposed to have authority over our bodies. We're supposed to have authority over the animal kingdom. We're supposed to have authority over nature. But of course, to a large degree, we don't have authority over our bodies. Uh, and to a large degree, we don't... Even nature, we're supposed to have authority over nature, but nature, to a large degree, does a lot of stuff that we wouldn't will, that we know isn't God's will. We're supposed to be in control of it, but instead we're slaves to it. We're subjected to it. Even our bodies, you know, the law of gravity. <laughs> we're sending our bodies in weird ways when you turn 50. You ever notice that? It just keeps on pulling. <laughs> you know, whatever that. Hey, that's not how it was meant to be. It decays our body, nature decays our brains, and then there's all these diseases, and then there's these earthquakes, and nature's gone amok. We don't have authority over it any longer. To a large degree, we're subject to it. We're subject to it. We're in bondage to it. It's futility. It erodes us. We've surrendered our control, so things that we're supposed to control now control us to a certain degree. And even a little authority that we have left, we often abuse that. So we were meant to, uh, we still have say-so on the environment, for example, and we were meant to care for the environment like God's garden. We were his viceroys, sort of his gardeners, and we were meant to care for it tenderly and reflect his care. But instead, because of the fall, and because of our subjection to sin and the principalities and powers, we to a large degree just consume it. We use it like it had no other purpose than just being there to serve us. So we, we damage it, we exploit it, we pollute it. And to a large degree, the environment that we're in suffers because of that. And the way that we treat animals, we still have authority over the animals to some degree, but we were meant to care for them and reflect God's mercy in how we care for them like God's pets. But to a large degree, we don't do that. We often abuse them. We act like they, are, oh, they only exist. Their only meaning, their only purpose is to satisfy us. They're there for our consumption and for our convenience. And so we've got many industrial farms where you take animals that are intelligent, sentient, feeling animals, like pigs, and we treat them like tomatoes. We put them in a little three-by-four cage because it's cheaper that way. And they don't have anything natural about their existence, and they suffer their entire existence. They go insane sometimes out of sheer boredom because they're intelligent animals, as intelligent as most breeds of dogs. And we just put them there in a little cage because it's cheaper so we can eat meat cheaper. That's not extending God's mercy and care towards them. You see, we, we have authority, but we abuse it. So we need to think about how our decisions on how we eat impact the animal kingdom. That's part of our role. And that may seem like a trivial thing to you, but it's our first command in the Bible, so it can't be that trivial. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, go to my website, gregboy.org. i got a little uh, documentary there uh, called Eating Mercifully. Uh, that will help you be a little bit, a bit informed on, on your eating habits. The point here is that because of the fall, we've lost a lot of the control we were supposed to have. So things that we were supposed to control now control us. And even the authority that we still have, we often abuse. Now what we need to know is that Jesus came to reverse all of that. He came to reverse all of that. Jesus didn't come to solve just a spiritual problem. He didn't come just to solve the sin issue. He didn't just come to kind of do some kind of spiritual transaction in the heavenly realms that allows us to escape hell. He came to impact the actual world, the real world, this world, the physical world, the way it is now. 
And he came to reverse the curse, to redo everything that had gone wrong. He came to reinstate us, his people, to be viceroys on this planet, to be co-rulers on this planet, to be a bride who's got, who's got empowerment and authority over all that we we're supposed to have authority over. He came to reinstate us, amen, to be his administrators, to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. He, Jesus came, he died, he rose to reverse all of that here and now. And so he came to take back all that belongs to God, and part of what belongs to God is his bride. And part of what belongs to the bride is her authority to co-rule with him. So Jesus came to reinstate his bride as, as his co-ruler on earth as it is in heaven. Which means, if you're submitted to Jesus Christ here this morning, genuinely submitted, I'm not asking do you believe in him, totally irrelevant actually if you're not submitted to him the question is if you're submitted to him that means that we have right now authority over our mind we have authority over our body we have authority over our environment we have authority over the animal kingdom we can't ourselves of course reverse the curse over the whole planet but we can use our little bit of say so our authority our ability to impact things in ways that are now in line with god's will rather than contrary to god's will and jesus came to reinstate that to to give us that authority back and that folks that is why god ordinarily doesn't just take away the things that control us because he wants us to experience the re-empowerment to have the authority to take authority over the things that now control us he wants us to do it He empowers us to do it. He doesn't want to do it all for us. No, he empowers us by his grace to do this. He wants us to relearn how to have authority, to relearn how to exercise his power on earth as it is in heaven. And so we read a verse like this, very important verse, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, continue, talking to Christians now, continue to work out. Now, notice the word continue. It means this is something that's a process. It's not a one-time magical word. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously, he's saying. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, that was, our, that was our, the plan from the beginning, that we are to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. That's what it means to be his viceroys down here. We carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. We dance with God, and in dancing with God, we are the means by which he is Lord over the earth. That has never changed. But notice, Paul says, work out your salvation you don't work at your salvation there's no earning here there's no points here okay this isn't santa claus we're talking about Uh, we're not working at our salvation but we are working out our salvation by grace god gives us the salvation which is not some kind of legal idea that the father has in heaven to get us out of hell no salvation is about our empowerment salvation is about this renewed relationship salvation is about this covenantal thing that we enter, enter, enter into with god and he gives us that for free he gives us that by his mercy he gives us that by his grace we've got it but now because we've got it we got to work it out we got to work it out what does that look like when we live it out in our day-by-day life but that presupposes that there's some work to do and we are the ones to do it God is in us for us to work. We couldn't work without God being in us. But now that God is in us, we still have to work. Sometimes we, especially Protestants, come from the Protestant tradition, we think we're, we're like afraid of that word work. Oh, work. No, that interferes with grace. Hogwash. Bunko. Er, earning. Earning contrasts with grace. Okay, that's the opposite. Work is the result of grace. If God is in you, then there's going to be work. You don't earn anything, but you work to manifest that grace that God has given you by giving you for free by his mercy, the salvation he put within you. Here's something I tweeted yesterday. If you follow tweet, I like to tweet. And and I, I get an idea and I just burp it. And so, but it came out just right. It said, we don't work our way to heaven, but the way to heaven involves a lot of work. Man, we got to get this. We got to get this. The way to heaven involves a lot of work. We don't work to heaven, but the way to heaven involves a lot of work. God, by his grace, has given us back our authority, given us back our power to work, to, to regain our place as God's voice for viceroys here on earth. And the first place we got to work at, the first thing we got to work on is our brain, because we're all brain damaged. We've been brain damaged by this fallen world. I, I was at a conference this week, and they, they had an acronym for PhDs, which... I always thought it meant piled high and deep. If you have a PhD, you mean that you're piled high and deep, which is true to a large degree. But they, they, they had a PhD means you have permanent head damage. 
that's kind of true too. But see, in essence, we all, uh, we're, we're all PhDs. This brain, uh, this world has damaged our brain. What we need to do is to take authority over our brain. Because see, the problem is that our brain thinks that it doesn't have authority. <laughs> it's lived all its life being told you don't have authority, you just are. Whatever you inherit, whatever lies you inherit, whatever garbage you inherit from the world, that's who you are. So we need our first job as those who, are, who are, now have salvation placed within us. And as we work out our salvation, it's to tell our brain, shut up. I tell you what to think. You don't tell me who I am. Take authority over that brain. To tell the brain that it's got authority. We're conditioned in this fallen world to think that we can't help what we think. So we just inherit all the lies around us. This is who I am. My mom always said this about me. And my dad always said this about me. And my grandma said this. And, and my uncle did this. And the boyfriend did this. And, 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 you know, and so that's just who I am. I can't help it. We just inherit it. Lies, 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 And then we're conditioned to believe that we can't help. We can't, we can't resist our bodily urges. I guarantee that half the movies you're going to go to this, this year, if you still go to movies, and half the television shows you watch, if you watch television shows, and, 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 and over half the, the songs you're going to hear on, on pop radio, if you listen to pop radio, are going to have this assumption built into them somewhere. When you got the urge, you got a surge. You can't help it. No, you know, you, you can't deny your bodily impulses. Oh, the urge is so great. You just have to act on that. You know, we're just sort of complex amoebas. Who can fight chemistry? Who can fight nature? Why, it's immoral to fight nature and chemistry. You're unenlightened and puritanical if you think you can fight back those urges. No, you, you just got to surge. I get so sick of seeing scenes like this that I saw a couple weeks in a movie. Here he is talking to her, and here she is talking to him. And he's married to somebody else, and she's married to somebody else, perhaps. And, and as they're talking, there's this energy. Oh, who can fight the energy? This energy between them. And they get kind of closer and closer. Before you know it, boom, they're on one another, lip-locked. <laughs> Like two parasites just hooking up. <laughs> How often does that happen? But the assumption of who can help it? Oh, who can help it? I call it primate morality because that's what it is. It's the morality of primates. You got the urge. You got a surge. Who can help it? We, you know, you just got to jump on one another. That's just... <laughs> me want, me got to have. <laughs> Lip lock. <laughs> well, that's, that's what you see, isn't it? Man, yeah, turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> I do it just for research purposes to know what's going on out there in the world. What's your excuse? <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, the first step in getting free of the sin bondage in our life is to realize the lies. To say the lies, to see the lies, to know that by God's grace and because of what Jesus did for us, we have authority. We have authority. We've re- regained the authority that we were created to have. The authority over our mind. We can't tell our minds what to think. The authority over our body. The authority over those urges. The authority over emotions. We are not slaves. We are rulers. Amen? We are not in bondage. We are free. We are no one's victims. We are God's viceroys. We are not mastered by our urges. We are kings and queens under the authority of our Lord God. We are not primates. We are not chimpanzees. We are children of God. We're filled with the Spirit. We're redeemed. We're holy and blameless in His sight. And our job is to manifest that, to work it out, to put it on display. If we saw it rightly, we'd see that sin is so beneath us. The lie of the enemy is that it's, it's the ultimate life. It's so liberated, it's so, it feels so good, it can't be wrong. But if we could see it for what it is, it's so beneath us. We're kings and queens acting like chimpanzees. No, 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 no. It's time that we start walking in our status as kings and queens. Take authority. Take authority. But now when I say take authority, it's not a magical hocus-pocus kind of a thing. See, and in some circles, they think it is. I take authority over my brain. I take authority over that habit, and I rebuke it. And it may be the case that that actually works, and now all of a sudden you're free. Most of the time, though, it doesn't work like that, and then you're left thinking that God let you down, or you just keep on sinning and waiting for God to show up and take it away from you. Uh, no, to take authority, remember Paul says, continue to work out. It's a process. It's a process, an ongoing process, which means we shouldn't be asking WWJD, we should be asking HDJT. 
You know, what would, WWJD is what would Jesus do? And, and, and that's, I'm not trying to bash that, that slogan. Probably a few of you have got bracelets that say that on it. You know, it was really big in the 70s, 80s, 90s. That, you know, people wore shirts. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Uh, I'm suggesting to you that the better question is to ask, how did Jesus train? Because if Jesus didn't train the way he trained, he wouldn't be able to do what he did. And you can't expect to do what Jesus did unless you're willing to train the way Jesus trained. You know, Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8 says, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned. He had to grow. And so the gospels portray him as, as practicing spiritual disciplines. He fasted when he went into the wilderness. Uh, he spent all night in prayer sometimes. He was always praying. He went to the synagogue. He spent time in, in, in communion with, 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 with friends. And, and there's these other things that, that Jesus did that cultivated a spiritual life, an empowerment, a union with the Father which is what empowers him to be able to do what he did. Our trouble is that we wait too long before we ask the question, what would Jesus do? So a typical scenario would be something like this. Here's Texra. She's trying to fight that gossip problem that she's had all of her life, and, and she's going to hold it back, and she happens to know something about somebody, or she heard something about somebody, and it's pretty juicy. Uh, but, you know, she's going to bite her lip. And so she's in a group of, of five other people, and then someone starts talking about somebody else. That's how it usually happens. You create an atmosphere where it becomes okay to do this. And maybe it's even expressed as a spiritual concern or a prayer request. But, see, that gives her permission to, in fact, she can't find it. She doesn't even make a decision about it. It just flows out. All that gossip in her head becomes gossip in her lips, and she starts talking about somebody. Well, did you know, I'm concerned about so-and-so because blah, 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 blah. See, it, she knows that that's not what Jesus would do. But in that moment, you, she couldn't help it. And that's the way sin operates. If you wait to the moment of temptation to ask, what would Jesus do? I, almost, I can almost guarantee you that you're not going to be able to do it. It's, it's, it's too late. We've got to ask the question, how did Jesus train? How, what kind of life did he live? What kind of disciplines did he cultivate that enabled him to do what he did? Paul compares the Christian life to an, athletic, an athlete in training. He says this in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, and this is from the message paraphrase. I usually don't like paraphrases, but I, I, I like a lot of the ways that uh, 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 the message paraphrases uh, verses. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 9. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. So he says, run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after a gold medal that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I, I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. Mm -hmm. Now, it's an analogy here. It's an analogy Paul's using. He's not, he's, he's not saying that the kingdom of God is literally like a race, like we've got to compete with one another to get in. That's not the point. The point is we should take living in the kingdom as seriously as an athlete takes training for a race or running that race. There should be that kind of intentionality, that kind of seriousness, that kind of discipline. If you want to move forward in Christ's likeness and grow in the kingdom of God and overcome, take control of the things that now control you, if you want that, then you have to expect hard work. You have to expect discipline. There's no shortcuts to this. That doesn't go against God's grace. That's working out God's grace. God's grace is the one who empowers you and motivates you to do this. There's no other way other than through discipleship. In fact, the word disciple comes from the word discipline. Um, to be a disciple means you're disciplined by your Lord. And by the way, the New Testament doesn't even conceive of the possibility of being a believer who's not being disciplined. This is what it means to sign up for the kingdom. To be in the kingdom and to participate in the kingdom means he reigns over you. That's the meaning of it. You're the dome over which the king reigns, the kingdom, which means you're submitting to him, which means you're, you're no longer submitting to yourself. You're no longer just giving in to those habits. You're, no longer, you know, you're coming against those in the power of God. To be di discipled, only way to grow. When, when, I, when I was a kid, in seventh and eighth grade, I grew up a little faster than, than most uh, kids did, and so I was kind of a superstar in sports for seventh and eighth grade. By ninth and 10th grade, I was a loser. But, but I had a moment there. Oh, I had my day in the sun. And I, I always had a lot of stamina. I was never very fast, but I, was, I had a lot of stamina. Um, still do. And, and uh, uh, so I was a long-distance runner. And my dream was to run like Jim Ryan. Jim Ryan was this American superstar. First uh, guy to ever break four minutes uh, in the mile in high school. In high school, he broke the four-minute mile. In fact, he still holds the record, uh, last I checked. Uh, for high schoolers. A 17 broke the four-minute mile. So, oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, he, I think he would have won the gold medal in the 68 Olympics. 
uh, in Mexico, but he got tripped up in the semifinals, and that was just a tragedy. But he was my hero. And so uh, at some point, I fantasized about being like him from 7th and 8th grade. I won every race I ran. I thought I could, I could do that. And then I, I, I got a hold of a book on training for running. I, I never read books, but I, I looked through this one. I found they had a section uh, that, that had his training schedule leading up to his breaking the, the four-minute mile. And it blew me away. This guy would run 20 quarter-mile intervals at 60 seconds apiece with a five, four- or five-minute rest in between. 20 of them in a single workout. Couldn't believe it. I, I would average six to eight. The most I ever did was eight quarter-mile intervals at 70 to 75 seconds apiece. And it would kill me. And I'd have five or six or more minutes in between each one. 20 at 60-second intervals. And I thought, man, if that's the price you got to pay to run a sub-four-minute mile, I'm not ready. I'm not sure I, I, I can sign up for that. <laughs> Especially because in between eighth and ninth grade, my life started going in a less disciplined direction. <laughs> I was putting things in my brain and, and my lungs and my liver that weren't exactly conducive to running a sub-four-minute mile. And, and I would have to give up. You know, I was like, oh, you can't do both. This guy was so disciplined, not just only in his training, but in how he lived, counting his calories and all of this. But I got this point, and that is this. If you want to dream about running like Jim Ryan runs, you, you don't start doing that when you're at the starting line up against everybody else. And as he's saying, on your mark, get set, you don't sit there and say, oh, I, I want to run like, I, I want to run, run a, a sub-four-minute mile. Right. I'm going to run like Jim Ryan runs. Probably not. I can guarantee you you're not going to break four minutes in the mile. The time to think about running like Jim Ryan runs is a year ahead of time when you're asking how did Jim Ryan train to run like Jim Ryan runs. And if you want to run a sub-four-minute mile, you better think about doing 20 uh, quarter-mile intervals uh, in, in one, one workout. It's like that for everything in our life, folks. If you want to overcome that gossip problem that you're in, don't think about it when you're in the middle of the temptation. When you're at the starting line and someone else starts a gossip thing going, that's not the time to ask, oh, how, what would Jesus do? I mean, you can go and ask that question if you want, but you're not likely to be successful unless you, a year earlier, like starting right now, ask the question, what kind of disciplines should I start taking onto my life right now? What do I need to put in place right now? What kind of sacrifices do I need to make right now and, and live in so that when I'm at that starting line, when I'm facing that temptation... I will now have the power, as I'm working out my salvation, the power to say no. And so it is when you're overcoming your lust problem. The time to ask that question is not when you walk in a hotel room and all of a sudden you habitually want to watch the television porn because, you know, no one's going to catch you there. No, no, don't wait till you get in the hotel room to start asking that question. Ask it now. God, what is it that I need to start doing now? What disciplines, what practices, what sacrifices to confront the things that hold us in bondage? I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but I got a word for you. If you want to be conformed to the image of Christ and start controlling the stuff that now controls you, you're not going to do it sitting on the couch eating potato chips watching sitcoms. It's not going to happen. No, you, you, the, 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 if you want to overcome the, the strongholds in your life, you don't wait till the lion is staring you in the face. The lion of temptation is staring you. That's not the time to do it. If you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you do it ahead of time. You start living a certain kind of life. You want to experience transformation. You, don't be waiting around for the genie to show up. And go, hocus pocus, now it's no longer there. No, 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 no. That'd be demeaning to you. He empowers you so you can begin to have control over, mastery over the things that previously mastered you. Why? Because you're above this. You are above this. You're a king and queen of the almighty God. And he empowers us to work out our salvation and to become his viceroys. We've got to train. It's all a matter of grace. And man, does it kick our butt. And both of those things are true. The world is full. I, I, I'll close with this, and then we're going to get to a couple of questions. You look at, at the world. All the, almost everybody who excels, is, it's, it's partly because of the sacrifices they make. We've got people right now training for the Olympics, the 2012 Olympics. And they're putting in three, four, five, six hours training a day, watching everything they eat, watching what they do, how much sleep they get, living Spartan existence so that they have a chance to compete in the Olympics and maybe win a medal. And then there's others who, who are, are making incredible sacrifices. They, they sign up for, to, to go into battle, and they go into boot camp. And I've heard what goes on in boot camp, and they make incredible sacrifices and incredible discipline so they can fight an earthly battle. And others who make incredible sacrifices to become the best artists they can be, or the best writers they can be, or the best scholars they can be, or to become CEO of a company. All of these gold medals fade. They last a little while, a little bit of acclaim, a little bit of uh, you know, star moment, and that's gone. 
We are involved in the eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. How much more serious should we take training in our life, you know, to be disciplined in our life? This is the one thing that lasts forever. And so Paul says, run, run diligently, be disciplined, like the athlete who is in training. Uh, I, I, I'll leave you with this, and then we'll get to the questions. But ask God, even right now, Holy Spirit, help us to, you know, this is Lent season. And in, 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 we don't make much of Lent usually. But this is in, in, in the church tradition, the time where for 40 days, people would give up something leading up to Easter. And it wasn't a way of getting points, righteousness points. It, it's a way of saying, this will not lord over me. Through the power of God, I am lord over it. And that is a good thing to do. Ask God right now, is there something in your life he would ask you to give up? It doesn't have to be a sinful thing, though it might be. But it could just be a neutral thing you like a whole lot. But it's just good once in a while for you to flex the muscle and say, you know, I like you, but I'm Lord over you. You're not Lord over me. So I'm going to go 40 days without it. And if you can't go 40 days without it, maybe it is lording over you. <laughs> yeah? You got to ask that question. Or maybe it's something like chocolate or maybe it's television. Huh? Or, or it could be your scotch. It could be whatever. Uh, or it could be something that you know that God wants out of your life right now. Maybe God lets other people have it, but not you. And so there's a time to say, okay, I gotta I let this go. What would God have you sacrifice right now? Ask friends if there's people involved in your life. Everything in the kingdom works better when it's done in relationship with others. And so ask friends to say, you know, can we do this together? Is there something that, how can we be disciplined together? How can we be athletes in training together? Uh, is there a way that we can join one another and encourage one another? And then look at other resources that are there. Uh, at the refuge, we've got uh, a, a group called the Ultimate Journey, and it's all about uh, uh, growing in discipleship. You might want to consider joining that group. There's other resources out there. This fall, we're going to be having several options available for people to grow in discipleship, to be mentored, and things like that. There's a number of good books out there on this. Uh, Dallas Willard's uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines is fantastic. Um, uh, it just t- takes traditional church disciplines uh, and, and helps people grow in them and, and, and practice them alone and with others. Another one is by Ruth, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, Sacred Rhythms, a, a great book on just kind of ch- integrating discipleship into the rhythms of your life to open you up for the kingdom. So take advantage of those things, but it all involves discipline. No pain, no gain. It actually is true in the kingdom as with most other things in life. Questions we have here. Are there any sins that the Bible says are victimless? Why should I care about sins that don't affect me? Are there any sins the Bible says are victimless? Why should I care about sins that don't affect me? Uh, Okay, I'm not quite sure of the question, but let me take a a guess at it. Um, At least one way of answering this question is this. A lot of times we think there are sins that are victimless, that don't create victims. Um... And almost always, in fact, I would say that is a lie. You know, I, I, I once read in uh, a book, it wasn't a Christian book, it was, uh, uh, I, think, I think it was in the Upanishads someplace. But you find truth in odd places. And it said there's no such thing as a private sin. And, and that actually is, I think, a true thing. We are bound together in ways that we can't fathom. Now, we, we individualist Americans don't think this way. We, we think of individuals as isolated from one another. We affect one another on levels that we can't even begin to imagine. Um, uh, and, and everything, because we're in one sense part of a corporate whole. I mean, that, that's kind of why you have this biblical view of Adam's sins and then everyone kind of pays the consequences for that. Or you have this idea of, of, of the sins of the fathers being visited on the third and fourth generation. That's not like a, an unjust judge up there saying, I'm going to punish the kids for what the parents did. In fact, uh, Ezekiel 18 uh, tells us that God doesn't operate that way. But there is built in the fabric of a morally responsible universe uh, the, the, the reality that we affect one another. One of the things that God did for me uh, when he freed me from pornography at the age of 20, uh, after two years of, of struggling with it uh, in my Christian walk, is he showed me that that uh, when I, even in private, participate in that, I'm contributing, at least on a spiritual level, and maybe on an economic level, if I paid any money for it, to the destruction of people. To, I am contributing to these people who are involved in this uh, to, 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 their, to, to their destruction. I'm voting yes to the kingdom of darkness. And, he showed me, that's the same kingdom that's involved in child kidnapping and mutilations and raping. So by voting for one, you're voting for the other. It's the same thing as if you take illegal drugs now. You may think, oh, come on, this is you, uh, you know, in, in the privacy of your, your room. I, who, can, who, can, who can be mad at that? Uh, but you've got to think about this. Uh, that, those drugs had to get smuggled into this country. And you could say, well, that, they, those are stupid laws. Fine, but they're still the laws. 
And so there's an illegal drug trade, and there's a bunch of people being killed by the drug raid and being kidnapped because of this drug raid, and you just voted for it by buying the stuff. So you can't privatize your sin. Uh, and, and so I'd be real careful about this idea of, of there being victimless. Um, what, what, what you do, it maybe mostly affects you, but it's also going to have ramifications uh, for others. And, and we have to just kind of be aware of that. That's part of the gravity of it. And that's why we need a Savior to come. And now, uh, through his empowering to now uh, uh, create in us uh, this, this, this motivation and this empowerment to start uh, having ripple effects in the other direction. Because while everything we do for the bad affects others, also everything we do for the good. Every yes for the kingdom has a ripple effect uh, that blesses others. All right, excellent question. From Brandon, how do we avoid sloppy living, but also the bondage of legalism? Perfect. You do it by getting rid of any kind of a point system. In fact, this might be a better way of getting at it. I've just found this way of, of, of construing situations to be helpful. The problem of legalism always comes because we construe things in a legal paradigm. If you, if you are thinking about salvation and your relationship with God in a legal paradigm, legalism is almost unavoidable. Legalism, uh, what I mean by that is God is the judge and you're the defendant and Jesus is the lawyer and his job is to get you off the hook. If that's the main way you think about God, then you're going to be living in the question, how do I get acquitted? How do I stay acquitted? What are the things I, I do that if I do them, I'll reverse my acquittal? And that's a legal paradigm. Uh, and now, any kind of disciplined living is simply done to appease the judge. What does the judge want of me? I must appease it. I don't want to lose my acquittal. I don't know. I'm okay. I go from this to, to this. But look at, think about it as a marriage. As a marriage. If you're married, there's going to be discipline. There's things that you maybe would like to do that you're not going to do, but you don't do them because you're, there's some judge watching you. You do it because you're in love with your spouse. You see, and the sacrifice is motivated out of love. So also... Um, uh, there's a place in our life, there's got to be a place where you say, because of the goal, the prize, this is Paul's metaphor of running this race, because I want that, I am going to make these modifications in my life. I'm not doing it to get points out there. I'm not doing it because I'm fearing hell. I'm doing it because there is in me this desire to get there. God, by his grace, put that desire in me and motivated me and empowers me. But now having that, I now make the decisions to say, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start fasting. I'm going to start, you know, uh, practicing other spiritual disciplines to get there. And so you're not, you're not legally acquiring anything or anything like that. It's just, it's, a, it's an organic covenantal uh, sort of thing uh, that, that we're dealing with. Got time for one more, if I can answer it quickly. From Anonymous, I have heard before that sins for some are not sins for others. It all depends of where your convictions are. Is this true? And if so, what exactly does it mean? Excellent. Uh, It is true that there are some sins that are sins for some and not for others. It's also true that there are some sins that are sins for everybody. So we can't use this as a way of saying, oh, it's all subjective. Uh, Romans 14 is about this. 1 Corinthians 8 is about this, where Paul talks about it very explicitly. Some people are allowed to eat meat. Other people aren't. Some people are allowed to drink wine. Some people aren't. You've got to listen to your conscience. And God is, is not democratic in the sense that he thinks that, that, that one, one rule fits all people. He'll require of some what he doesn't require of others. Because we're all, we're all created differently. We're all unique. He, and we're all at different places. And so we have, that's why you can't look at somebody else and say, well, because it's okay for them, it's not okay for you. You know, if you're honest with God, uh, what at least right now, he, he requires of you. And it's a sin for us to go against that. Paul says, whatever doesn't come of faith is sin. Whatever doesn't, it violates our relationship with God is sin. Now, there are some sins that are sins for all. Those are the ones that are just laid out there in the New Testament. I don't want to hear anybody telling me that, well, maybe it's a sin for others to cheat on their spouse, but not for me. Or maybe it's a sin for others to fornicate, but not for me. Because uh, I feel okay about it. Well, that's part of your PhD. <laughs> uh, of course, you, you feel good about it. Everything in your culture conditions you to feel good about it. That's the problem. You know, so there's a place to say, no, there's some, there are absolutes here. But having said that, we all have to now realize we answer to, uh, to, to God on our own and, and, and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And what he, what he requires of us may be very different. A lot harder than what he requires of, of another. And we just have to let that be the way it is. So, the point here. Don't ask WWJT. Ask, how did Jesus train? Live a life. Ask God, what is it that he would like you to... Right now, start small. Uh, to give up. To sacrifice. To make that a, the normal of your life. We're so conditioned to be indulgent. 
Every whim we, we just want to indulge ourselves. That's why our bodies are like toddlers who throw tantrums if we don't give them their way. Start denying yourself in ways. Because that is really the only way towards freedom. Uh, and and, and live, live lives that are disciplined. That are, are, you're in training for the kingdom. I'm in training for the kingdom. And I have to take that as seriously as anyone who's right now training for the Olympics. Uh, live differently. Swim upstream. Uh, deny. Uh, as God leads you, deny some of the things that would otherwise come natural to you. From Anonymous, this series all implies a trust or belief that God is listening and cares. Crap happens, yes. But how do you overcome a belief that God has abandoned you? If you believe God has abandoned you, how do you overcome that? Mmm. Well, gosh, it's a chicken egg thing, isn't it? I almost want to say, like, we just got to believe that. I, I, how do you overcome? I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how to respond to this because... Uh, it's kind of a question where I'd have to be talking to you face to face, I think. I don't have a, I, I don't know how to answer that unless I, I, I know you a little bit. Uh, like, like, for example, um, I want to know why, why do you think God has abandoned you? We can talk about that. Why do you think God has abandoned you? What's the, at the root of it? Uh, often, people feel like God has abandoned them because they had um, an expectation that what it meant for, to believe in God is that he was going to come through on something. Um, he was going to protect you. Uh, if you believe in God, he's going to watch over you and your kids or, you know, or something like that. And then when, when it looks like God doesn't come through, then you, you feel like, oh, he didn't come through on this problem. He abandoned me. Um, and if that was the problem, then what I want to talk about a little bit is, is why you thought that in the first place. Um, that, that, and we had a message on this uh, some time ago about what is part of the covenant. And I would submit to you that God, part of the covenant was not that God was going to come through for us uh, in terms of manipulating things so that we will always be happy, wealthy, and blessed and, 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 and never have tragedies happen to us. Or that, that's not promised at all. I don't think it's promised. You can find verses like that in the Old Testament, that, but that was a, a completely different gig back then. Um, uh, what Jesus promises us in the New Testament is that God will be faithful. He'll always be there, but in this world you will suffer. That's the promise. And you just look at the example of Jesus and, 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 and all the other disciples, and they got crucified and tortured, and other terrible things happened to them and their families. That's what we're to expect in this world. And so um, I would just encourage you not to, I, I don't know what your reasons are for thinking that God abandoned you, but I, but I promise you that he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. And, and, and that those reasons you, that you had for thinking that he was going to come through on those things, that, that those, were, those were misplaced. Um, he, he, his word says he'll never leave you or forsake you. So you may feel abandoned. I would say, ignore your feelings. <laughs> ignore your feelings. Now, I can tell you a lot of reasons why I believe God exists, if that's the problem, or, and why God's revealed in Jesus. Uh, I can tell you my reasons for thinking that God will never abandon me. Um, and we, we could have a conversation around that. But yeah, so, so uh, I, I would talk about the root cause of this sense uh, that uh, God has abandoned you. Because he never will, even when you think he has. From Jim, Jim says, I have been struggling due to a friend that committed suicide. To me, it's the greatest sin we can commit. Do you think that God looks at each case and forgives them based on their circumstances? Do you think God looks at each case and forgives uh, based on their circumstances? Interesting question. And and painful question, too. Um, I, I don't think God forgives based on circumstances. Uh, now, there's two senses of the word forgive. If you mean ultimate relinquishing of debt, I don't think God forgives on the basis of circumstances. He, uh, he relinquishes debt based on Jesus Christ. He has relinquished the debt. I think when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, uh, they don't know what they're doing, I think the Father answered that prayer. I don't think Jesus was praying out of God's will when he prayed that prayer. So uh, the question of forgiveness, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think anyone is judged now because of uh, particular sins in their life. Uh, they're judged because of the, the refusal to accept God's relinquishing of their sin. They suffer the consequences because they won't, they won't opt out based on what Jesus has done for them. But it's not, it's not really the sin that brings about the judgment. It's their lack of Christ. So I don't think God forgives in the sense of releasing a debt based on circumstances. Having said that, um, I do think God knows the particular circumstances of every person in a way that we never can. And so this idea, part of what's maybe behind this question is that there's this idea, uh, an old traditional idea going back to Dante, that if a person commits suicide, they automatically go to hell. And there's nothing in the Bible that supports that. Suicide is murder. It's self-murder. 
And so it's really, really, really terrible. But it's just as bad, no better or worse, than any other kind of murder. Um, it's, it, it, you have no right to take your own life or anyone else's life. But there's, not, there's nothing to suggest that it's in a separate category. Or that it's unforgivable. Or that there's no hope for people who have done that. Um, and God knows the particularity of, of every person who, who does that. Let alone every other sin. And so only God can judge. And that's why our job is to have hope but not judge. To, 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 to just know that you know, Jesus died for this person and God will do everything and has done everything, will continue to do everything possible to salvage them and to work in their life. And we just trust in the goodness of God and the relentless passion and pursuit of God towards every person, including those who commit suicide, and, and you let that, let that go. But God, I've known people who've just been tormented because a loved one committed suicide and they just think that that, that means they're locked in hell. And uh, no, 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 I, 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 there, there's hope. There's hope there. I think uh, there's always hope with the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. Got time for one more, I think. Uh, is it wise to personalize original sin? Oh, this is interesting. Is it wise to personalize original sin? I am certain that nobody in the room personally chose to allow Satan to rule the terrestrial world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question is, that's a good one. Good luck with that one. Stump the pastor. Um, no, okay, so original, okay, so the, I, I think the question is assuming that, and I would agree with this, original sin is about the bondage of humanity. And it's true that none of us, no, none of us chose, to, we, we didn't like one day say, okay, I want Satan to rule my life and rule the world. Right now, no. Uh, it, 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 um, and so if that's what you mean by personalized original sin, I totally agree with you. I think I, I agree with you anyways. Um, uh, you, we, we can't take responsibility for all of the misery. We shouldn't take responsibility at all for all the misery that's in the world. No, I, I, I don't feel responsible for what happened in Japan. I feel bad for what happened in Japan. But I don't, take, I don't personalize that. I don't personalize the fallenness of the world. On the other hand, I mean, so the, here's the paradox. I'm born and you're born in a polluted environment. And this, so the cards are stacked against us to start with. And that kind of ticks me off, but that's just the way it is. Deal with it. We're all born in, 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 in sort of a, uh, a, a polluted incubator where the air that we breathe is polluted. So it renders it inevitable. That, I mean, everything's, we're going to eventually sin. This is the fallenness of humanity. And yet we are responsible when we sin because we didn't have to. Nothing makes us sin. No, there may be things that actually make you act in aberrant ways, but those aren't things that you'd be responsible for. Those are chemical malfunctions or whatever, and you're not responsible for that. But to the degree that we have free will and could do otherwise, we're responsible for it. Uh, the fact that we have influences, there's influences on us uh, towards, towards, towards sin, but an influence is not a cause, so we're still responsible for what we do. And so we all do sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, and none of us had to, even though as part of this whole human collective whole, uh, uh, and this polluted incubator that, that we've allowed to have happen, it's inevitable that we will fall short of the glory of God, and therefore all of us desperately need God's grace. So I wouldn't personalize... Oh, here, here's, here's a way to end it. I wouldn't personalize the original sin. No, that, that, in some ways we're just afflicted with that. And it just means the sin that we're born into. That's not our fault. That's why I don't think babies... There's this weird doctrine in church history that some held that babies, if they're not baptized, go to hell. What is wrong with that? I mean, that's... What? Babies, how, how dare you be born? You're going to hell because no one baptized you. I'm really mad. I, the baby wasn't trying to be born. <laughs> Poor thing. Oh, I remember when I heard that in, in, in Catholic school, I, I, my gut just dropped out. Second grade, I remember. I'll never forget it. Like, oh, oh those poor babies. Uh, I, I almost started crying. Then the, the nun explained that, well, it was limbo, which is, is the highest level of hell. So they're not in the hottest flames. They're just, they're just miserable. It's like, well, that doesn't help much. It's like, man. No, no. so don't personalize original sin. On the other hand, we do personalize original sin in some ways in that when we choose to act on it, now it's ours, you see. I, I can't help but be that I was born in this environment uh, and all these influences. That's just what it is. But there is, within all that, a, a free will that I have that I, and God's pulling me, you know, in one direction, empowering me to say yes to the good and no to the evil, but there's other influences that want me to say no, and I choose, and invariably, not, not all the time, but, but it, all of us sooner or later do choose sin, and that's when we personalize it. So don't personalize original sin, but personalize your own sin, and then get free of it, because God created you to have a power and authority over that. And so the, the, the point of this message then is this, don't ask, 
Don't ask, what would Jesus do? No, no, that, 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 there's too late. Ask, how did Jesus train? And then start living that way. And you'll find that as you live that way, then when the times of temptation come, when the, the, the starting gun gets fired and it's time to race, now you're in a position where you can begin to run the way that God empowers us to run. God is, is at work in you by his grace, by his love. He's at work in you. But it's to do his good pleasure, and we're the ones who do it. So there's a part that we play, an important role that we play. God doesn't usually magically take it away from us because he wants us to learn, regain our authority over our minds, over our bodies, or environment over the kingdom as will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. From Pat, why did Jesus need to train since he was God and already perfect? Excellent question. Here's the thing. It says in, in uh, 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 Hebrews 5 that though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And once made perfect, uh, he became, was it the author and finisher of our faith or, or something like that? But it says once made perfect. Now the word there is telao. In Greek. And it doesn't mean morally perfected, but it does mean completed. Completed. See, because Jesus was a full human being, he's fully God, but he's God become a human being. He's God existing as now a full human being. And to be a full human being means you have to learn. That's how human beings always have to learn. He had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, I, I don't think he ever sinned. A sin is an intentional, willful thing where you go against the Father's will. But he did learn, and there's a lot of verses that, 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 that support that. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 57. He grew in wisdom and stature. He had to be completed as a human being. And so uh, he had to submit his will to the Father, and that's something he had to learn. He had to learn how to, be, uh, uh, to put his, his own will aside and to only do the, the, the Father's will. And, um, and so that's why he can be our model. If he came down as sort of, you know... Uh, God in a human suit, you know, sort of Superman, and, and never was tempted and never had to learn. You know, he, he's, he's, as a little baby, he's out there running the universe, you know, and, and, and he's just pretending to be a little baby. Well, then we, he wouldn't be an example for us. Who can follow that? You know, he, he, no fair. He, he's, he's God. But no, because he's a full human being, he can be a real example that we're to follow and, um, and, and, and to aspire towards. Good question. Next, next one. From Dan. Since I can't seem to stop sinning, how do I balance God's grace with what Paul tells us in Romans 6.1? Okay, Romans 6.1 says, let us, uh, 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 should we sin that grace may abound? Paul asked that question. He asked it three times in his epistles. Should we sin that grace may abound? Which tells us that when you're preaching grace right, some people will come to the wrong conclusion that that means we can just keep on going on sinning so grace will increase. But it's a wrong conclusion. People who have a, have a uh, in the natural mind, grace becomes a license to do whatever you want. Especially if you're thinking about things in a, par- in a legal paradigm. You know, I've talked a lot about this legal paradigm. Not a good way to think about theology. But in a legal paradigm, God's the judge and you're the defendant and Jesus gets you off the hook. Uh, well, if that's, your le- then if that's your paradigm, you can come to the conclusion uh, that uh, since Jesus let you off the hook, the judge doesn't care what you do now. Or he doesn't see what you do now. You've got, you've got unconditional acquittal. Woohoo! Let us sin that grace may abound. Uh, the thing is, in Romans 6, I don't know what the questioner thought here, but Romans 6, Paul asked that question to refute it. Read Romans 6, 2. He says, Megenito in Greek. No way! Sometimes it's translated, God forbid, though that's not a very good translation for it. It's like, no way! Let it never be! Impossible! Are you kidding me? And then he tells us why. And read Romans 6, it's a very beautiful passage because he says, he says, he first calls them back to their baptism. Don't you remember your baptism? You guys, when you're baptized, that's your identif- identification with Christ's death and resurrection. So he calls them back to their baptism to remind them who you are. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? No, you died with Christ. Now, when you died with Christ, that means you're dead to sin. Your old nature is dead. When he was crucified, you were crucified. That's what going down into the water means. And when you came up out of the water, that means you're identifying with his resurrected self. And so how can you be saying, uh, let's, let's sin that, that grace may increase, when grace isn't just some kind of acquittal in heaven. It changes who you are. It is God who's in you both to will and to do his, his good pleasure. Great. Salvation is a real thing. It changes you. Uh, Paul says, therefore, be transformed. Uh, uh, Romans 6, 11 says, uh, be transformed. Or, uh, uh, um, consider yourself, since you are dead to sin, consider yourself to be dead to sin. 
uses the word logizomai, which means just to, here's how you should think about yourself. Since you are dead in Christ, live like you're dead to sin. Your old self is dead. And since you are raised with Christ, live like you are raised with Christ. Think like you are raised in Christ. Have the authority like you're raised in Christ. Have the empowerment that you have in Christ because that's all real. That's all true. In other words, what he's saying in Romans 6 is sin is so beneath you. Why do you keep acting like you're a chimpanzee when you're a child of the king, when your old self is dead and you're a new creature in Christ Jesus? That's the old you. That's not the new you. And salvation is not a matter of letting your old you just have your old ways. No. It's a matter of empowering you to be the new you and to live in new ways. Hallelujah. I'm glad. Thanks for asking that question. I'm really glad you did. So many people take away that license thing. See, our carnal nature likes that. If salvation was, God puts on Jesus' spectacles and can no longer see my sin. Well, how convenient is that? I said, but God loves you too much to let you wallow in your pigsty. Uh, no, no, he, he wants us to, to, to get washed up and, and start living like kings and queens. Got time for one more, I think. From Anonymous. Why should what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve result in us being punished by suffering, dying, and living in this screwed up world? Amen to that. How is it that not one of the harshest sentences ever... How is that not one of the harshest sentences ever handed down? Okay, excellent. Um, That is a very, 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 very very good question. Um, Here's how I process this. If if you're thinking in a legal paradigm, legal paradigms are are never, are hardly ever helpful. Where God's the judge and we're the defendant, Jesus is our attorney. And unfortunately, this is how we, all, we tend to view everything in the Bible. And there's some legal terminology in the Bible, but I, I, I submit to you that it's not the primary way that the Bible thinks about God's relationship with humanity. But if you have that legal paradigm, then you, what you'll, you'll, you'll hear the Adam and Eve thing as a legal sentence. So now the punishment, it's like a, a legal verdict. Here's the verdict. Since you guys sinned, all of your children are gonna, now going to be under bondage to Satan. And all, you know, and all this harsh stuff is going to happen and earthquakes and all this kind of thing. I, here's a different way of looking at it. It's, ra- it, it, it's more organic. It's like this. If, if, you're a, uh, uh, if parents snort cocaine uh, all the time while they're raising their kids, it's going to damage their kids. Especially if you're snorting cocaine while you're pregnant with your child. Uh, there's a natural law of cause and effect. We are responsible for one another in, in ways that are more profound than we normally realize. What we do has consequences. It's wired into the nature of things. Now, we can talk about why it has to be wired in the nature of things, and that's a much more complex question. But we all know in some ways that, that the decisions that we make have repercussions on others. This is what the Bible means when it says that God ju- uh, brings, uh, uh, brings judgment on the third and fourth generation of, 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 of parents. I visit you know, the, 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 the punishment of the third and fourth generation. It's not like God is trying to get even or pass out to come into a legal sentence on the fourth generation based on what the parents did. That would be the most unjust thing imaginable. Especially when there's other verses that tell us that God, you're only responsible for what you yourself do. Ezekiel 18 tells us that. Ezekiel 32 tells us that as well. Uh, no, but it's an organic thing. Uh, if we have the capacity to love one another, we have the capacity to harm one another. And, and, and as I see it, when, when, when God says, oh, because of the fall, now the earth is going to be cursed and thorns and thistles and all this kind of stuff, he's just describing the way things are in fact going to be because of this fall. I, I see the, the sin of Adam and Eve, however literal figurative you take that, doesn't make any difference, but it, it's a sin that puts a crack in the incubator, if you will. Here's humanity at its infantile stage, and God's plan was to grow us to the point where we become one with us, and at the very beginning, there's a crack in the incubator, which allows infection to get in the incubator, which pollutes the atmosphere, and now the sin ball gets rolling. And, and, uh, and so we're all polluted. This is what's called original sin. We're all born in an environment, I don't believe guilty at all for for anything that Adam and Eve did, but we're born in, a, in an environment where, where all of humanity has, has brought in this pollution and we breathe that air, which renders it inevitable that sooner or later we sin. We're only responsible for what we choose. The fact that, but we are responsible for that because the fact that we're born with influences uh, inclining us in a certain way doesn't necessitate that we go that way. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it's that God's getting even uh, for what Adam and Eve did. But there is this terrible consequence uh, because of that fall. And we all repeat that in our own lives. And so, so really, we all, we all, with every sin we, 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 we engage in, we all further the snowball effect of sin in this planet. And we all share some responsibility for its screwed upness. We're all, we're all victims, but we also are all culprits. 
Uh, we participate in this, which is why we need the grace of God coming into our life, washing us clean and restoring us to a right relationship with him, ourselves, one another, the animals, and the environment. I'm going to close in prayer. I'd like the prayer teams to come forward. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, whether it's about this topic or something else, I encourage you to come forward and receive that prayer. Don't walk out with that burden on your own. Uh, come up here and share it with these folks. But Father, we thank you, God, for being a God who has, has and is every moment working in us and through us both to will and to do your good pleasure. God, help us to be a people who take our walk with you as seriously as any Olympic athlete, even more seriously, as seriously as any person going into war right now, as seriously as anybody who wants to be the best in their field, because what we're about is so much more important. God, motivate us, put a fire in us to say at any cost, at any cost, at any cost. I want to look like you. I want to live for you. I want to put on display your freedom, your kingdom. In Jesus' name and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and get in training.